Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Ezra. Ezra, we continue our series, Pursuing God. As you're turning there, I want to point something out. You may be sitting on it, but you should have seen a a little red-covered pamphlet that looks a lot like this. As we move towards our Easter services, we want to resource you and keep on the forefront of our mind uh, ways that you can engage your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, whoever it may be. Uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've got these cards available, which are invite cards for our Easter services. But I also want to put this in your hand to get to the real crux of what we're focusing on to celebrate in this season. And his name is Jesus. This little reminder provides a great opportunity for your own prayer and meditation and to remember who the Lord Jesus is. But then also as you prepare to invite someone to come with you to talk about the reason we celebrate and who it is that we worship and even to provide that to them if they have questions about who Jesus is. So I hope that you're continuing to pray about who the Lord will lead you uh, to invite and join you uh, in our celebration of Easter. All right, pursuing God, Ezra chapter 6, we're looking at the power of God that transforms life. The power of God that transforms life. Now, I I like to give just a brief, like, get up to speed because historical context is critical in a book of history in the Old Testament that we're looking at. And so in our study, we've seen that the work of the exile Israelites in their return to Jerusalem has been completed. They've restored worship and begun to gather again, and they've reorganized themselves around God's commands and God's mission in order to flourish as God's people. And so we see in the calendar of events that Passover is quickly approaching. And for the Israelites, there was no more powerful of a celebration than the annual celebration of Passover. I find it very uh, appropriate that our look at Passover here is only a couple of weeks prior to our own celebration of Easter because of what Passover represented to them. It represented the power of God that transforms life as we'll see in just a moment. I want to begin by reading from Ezra 6. I'm going to read verses 13 through 22, the end of the chapter, and then we'll continue with the message. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar, Bozanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. 
They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel." And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. God's will is fulfilled in this passage as they finish their building by his decree. That's how it begins in verse 13 today, according to the word. Both through the prophets of God, Haggai and Zechariah that are mentioned, but also through the pagan king, Darius, who was taking over and fulfilling Cyrus's decree from three generations before. And Ezra reveals to us that God had providentially worked through divine and human means to accomplish his will. This should be a great encouragement to us believers to know that God's providential hand is at work in the world, yea, even in our world today. Then the people of Israel dedicate the house of God through their celebration. And Ezra notes the extensiveness of this celebration that we should understand as well. Each tribe, he says, was represented by a male goat. Now, why is that important? Why is it important for us to understand that each of the tribes was represented? It tells us they sacrificed at the apex of their uh, celebration 12 male goats according to each one of the tribes of Israel. If you will remember, they had been taken by the Babylonians out of Judah and Jerusalem and put and dispersed throughout all of Babylon. And so when the exiles came back, They were a representative portion of all the people. Not all the people returned. But the people that did return, when they reestablished the worship of the temple, it was important for them not to go, well, there's a few of us that got back so long to the others, right? But rather to say this worship represents not just those who are present, but all who are God's people. You see, each according to, to the tribe of Israel means this, that no one had been forgotten by God. In the exile, in the return, God sees, God knows, God cares, God hears, and in their worship, they wanted to represent faithfully who God was and what he was doing. That's why all of God's people were included in this way and not only the exiles who returned. So the celebration culminates by reinstating the leaders for God's service according to God's word. With the work finished, 
worship restored, the people's identity was restored as God's servants among the nations. That's who they were. They had identified that in our last message in the earlier part of chapter 6. But now we see that God's people are restored as his witness among the peoples of the world. So finally, after the house of God is dedicated, the time for Passover comes. Now Passover was that annual celebration of God's salvation for his people. Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 30 records God's protection in the midst of the 10th plague when the people were still slaves in Egypt. And because God was demonstrating his mighty power to Pharaoh and the the powers that be in Egypt, he had demonstrated his power through nine plagues, but in the tent would be his most glorious display of power yet. And the Bible records that when the angel of death would pass through the camp, every house whose doorpost was covered with the blood would not have any loss of life. But for every house who did not cover their doorpost with blood, the firstborn of that house would be taken on that night by the angel of death. And so all night as the angel of death passed through, the record records, every time he came to a doorpost that had the sacrificial blood of the lamb painted on it, the angel of death passed by and they were protected because of their trust in God. That's what Passover was a remembrance of. And the scripture records in Exodus 12, listen to these words, the blood will cover you and death will pass you by. Under the blood you will live because you are mine. That's the promise of God. They escaped death because God saved them. So when they celebrated Passover, it was in remembrance and observance of God's most powerful display of mighty deeds in saving his people. And it served as the central celebration of salvation all the way until the cross of Jesus Christ which replaces Passover, not just symbolically with the blood of the Lamb, but with the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, we worship a God who is mighty to save. That's what we are told here. That's what Ezra is telling us and teaching us and instructing us in as he points from his day all the way to ours. These passages show the power of God at work for his glory. First of all, by his divine providence, that God was acting, the hand of God was active at work in the lives of his people, but also in the lives of even the pagan rulers. That's why Proverbs tells us that The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of God that steers it where he determines it to go. That's what we see here. That God is present among his people in their worship. God's not abandoned his people. He's there with them. He is for them. And his provision to save has been made. They need only to trust in him. The God of the Bible is a powerful God who is mighty to save his people. He is the Lord of all creation who works all things for his people in accordance with his will. If you've ever read 
memorized or referred to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, friends. It is that verse that you are seeing played out in real time in Ezra 6. That's what God is doing. And so I want to pause here for a moment and say, well, this is the way that God works. If he is a God who is mighty to save, whose power works in behalf of his people, let me just make this personal for a moment because I believe that's where we need to get today and simply ask you this. Are you experiencing the power of God displayed in your life today? Are you experiencing God's power displayed in your life? Do you want to see and experience more of that power in your life. You know, so often I think we, we dismiss so many acts of God's powerful hand at work in our life because we're looking for uh, what I like to refer to as the great shamwow. We're looking for the stuff that's just, oh, oh, you know, it it's, it's just kind of overwhelms us. But the fact of the matter is we're far more entertained and far less impacted by that we walk away and we talk about the show but we don't walk away and praise the name of the one that it was all about Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 through 12 reminds us that the the wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ his power is on display through the church like we we are the people of God in the world where the power of God is on display for his will and glory and for our good. How is this working out today? Where the gospel points us back to Jesus to understand what he has done for us and, and the very day that replaced the Passover or rather that the Passover pointed to in the Old Testament, they were pointing forward to Jesus through the Passover that there would be a lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people and that lamb's blood would take away the sins of the people. What in the Old Testament it could only represent In the new, it fully supplies. You see, God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ, friends. And it is his power that is displayed in the world through the lives of his people. Through the lives of his people. Here's what I want you to see today. God's power permeates all of life when the gospel centers everything for the display of his glory. God's power permeates all of life this is my appeal to you today let there not be one part of your life that the power of God is not impacting and and completely transforming and how when the gospel centers everything for the display of his glory I want to see today through three distinct ways that I believe are revealed to us here how it is that God's power permeates our life and the first one I want you to see is in verse 13 through 15. It's this, that God's power permeates all of life when his word becomes our sustaining strength. When God's word becomes our sustaining strength. Now here's what we know. To date in Ezra's record, it was the word of God that had called his people back. And it was the word of God that had awakened his people from their slumber when they became overwhelmed by the opposition and stopped and walked away from the work. And, and, and now that word, it tells us, was strengthening the people of God to persevere because the opposition did not stop. 
the local governors continued to threaten, continued to intimidate and to seek to stop the work. But it tells us that the people of God said, we are God's servants. God sent us for this reason. Do what you need to do. We're going to do what we must. And so it strengthened to persevere. And Ezra makes clear that his word provided the strength for them to accomplish the work that God had given for them to do. And that word provided strength to his people. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets who were directly preaching and encouraging the people. But the word of God also came through. How? Human means. The pagan rulers of that day were siding in favor of God's people. They could see the hand of God and his providence by the very decrees. And so when these local governors were threatening them, they appealed to the higher power and they said, you better check. These are rebellious people. That's why you had to shut them down in the first place. But what they didn't see was what God had written through King Cyrus, that they were to go back and return, rebuild the temple and bring worship for God's people back. To God. There's no greater power, nor is there any other means to accomplish God's will than His Word that is working in us by His Spirit alive in us. The Bible tells us that it is God's Word, it is living and active, Hebrews records. That in Romans it tells us it produces faith in the hearer by the hearing of it being read. That it empowers our obedience when we fill our lives with it by our reading, by our study, by our our diligence to understand. It empowers our obedience to the commands and the will of God by submitting our life to the one who is God. And it tells us that, that God intentionally sends forth his word into the world by his servants to accomplish the purpose for which he sent it out. And it will never return to him void without doing what he sent it to do. That's what God promises. So by promise, God's power strengthens us to obey his word. God's power strengthens us to serve and his mission. When his word remains in us, in our labors, in, in our prospering, and our seeing God's will accomplished for our life. You say, well, there have been a few times I felt like maybe it didn't give me the strength I needed. Well, let, let, me, let me tell you one way that we often substitute God's word and we find strength to be weak. We create cliches that give us the form but remove the substance. One-off mantras, if you will. And don't get me wrong, I love single words. I like to kind of boil everything down to just single words and, 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 and to find ways that help me remember it, but it should never become a substitute. Especially in hard times when words tell us, you know, everything's going to be okay. And you're sitting there going, it doesn't feel okay. Everything's going to work out. It doesn't feel like it's working out. Feels like it's just working me over. And these words come to us, but the substance of them leave us longing for more. And when we struggle to be faithful, we, 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 we fail to go to the word to hear how we can, can, can do something for God. But that always fails us because God is not wanting us to do something for him. He's wanting us to believe in what he's already done for us. 
And when you go to the word to know God's word, to, to, to obey the commands because you believe in your obedience, you'll make God happy and remove whatever stain it is or whatever uh, uh, um, a burden that it is. You, you have to understand God didn't call you to the word so you can perform and appease him. He called you to the word to put faith in you so you would believe him. And when you believe him, and receive what he has for you. You find that your goodness will never suffice. But his will always be sufficient. You see God's word is our source. It means that we come to his word. And we, we press in. Where he meets us with the promises. To hear the promise. And to understand. To comprehend what he's saying to us. So that we take it and embrace it in our heart. We read the word to hear his voice and to behold his greatness, to receive faith from him, to, to receive strength of heart, peace of mind, and comfort for a weary soul. We meditate on his word to invite the spirit of God to come into our life and to illuminate that word, which is what it tells us the spirit of God does. And then as he illuminates our, the meaning of the word and how it matters for our life, he begins to apply it to the different situations or circumstances or the burdens of our life. We memorize the word to take it with us as our strength and our guardian. That's why the psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We study it for deeper understanding to, to gaze into the face of God so that we can see the very person of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate. Friends, you will never know God's will, nor will you recognize his work apart from his word. And when you are told or when you believe otherwise from that, that you need not know his word to behold his work or his will, you are being deceived and misled. It comes by the word God's power permeates all of life when we are saturated by his word to awaken and sustain us. This is how the word of God works very distinctively. The second distinct way is that God's power permeates all of life when his joy fuels our motivation and our celebration. When his joy fuels our motivation, our why for life, our why for loving him, our why for the way that we live for him. As well as our celebration, have you seen what my God has done? You see, the work was completed for the Israelites and the celebration began. And what a great joy to see God's work completed. Remember, they had not offered any sacrifice. They had not gathered for worship in over 70 years at this point. 70 years and while this offering didn't compare to the offerings they had known before, we've already looked at that because the temple didn't compare to the structural form that it had once uh, been on this same foundation. That didn't matter because the pouring out of God's work among the people was conjuring up great joy and filling to overflowing among the people. But can you imagine how powerful this moment must have been for them? First time in 70 years. Imagine if 
For the first time in 70 years, we walked back into the building this morning to gather in worship. What would it have been like? Well, Chad comes and gets in the drum cage, picks up the drumstick, cracks the head, and the drumstick just shatters. Why? 70 years has a way of decaying a lot of things. The acoustic guitar has one string barely hanging on, right? The keyboard, well, it doesn't even connect to the way that they connect things anymore. I can't even begin to imagine the technical difficulties that would be experienced. And so you go, you know what, we're going to have an acoustic day today. Uh, And when we say acoustic, we mean voices, that's all. What are we going to sing? Anybody remember those songs we used to sing 70 years ago? You can only begin to imagine how long it had been. But, But something else was taking place here, friends. Because for them, this was the annual celebration to remind them of the gospel. They didn't carry the word in their back pocket or on their little tablets or, or, you know, in this. They didn't have 10 different forms of being able to open the Bible and 40 gazillion resources immediately available at their hands. If they didn't gather for worship, they had no way to hear the word of God read. And Hebrews tells us that in the Old Testament, On the day when the Passover was celebrated and the lamb was slaughtered, the people knew that the blood of that lamb didn't actually remove the stain of their sin. It only represented the promise that God would remove it. But they had not even seen a word of hope in 70 years. That's a dark, dark period, friends. And so the priest and the Levites were restored. The celebration and the thanksgiving, it poured out. It produced more and more increasing and overflowing joy in the Lord. And that continued to strengthen their motivation for his presence to remain among them. You see, they were gathering again. And there was this powerful, renewed sense of the importance and hence the priority that it gave to their lives. You know, learning to rejoice in the Lord is essential That's why the scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we are to rejoice in him because if we're not rejoicing in him, we will draw as some other source and glean some other gladness, happiness that may for a moment seem to replace it but will not sustain us and last. Rejoicing in the Lord means that we turn from other idols. We turn from the false hopes of our life. We turn from the false idols that we've put in the place of God and we begin to look to him and to him alone. We put those things away that we might trust in him and in him alone for the very things that we were trusting other things for. It doesn't mean conjuring up some kind of fake happiness. Oh, I've got to put my happy face on today. It's time to go to church. That's not what rejoicing in the Lord is all about. It's rather recognizing and giving thanks for his provision. When the song that we just sang begins, I was a wretch. I remember who I was. (laughs) I think it's when we forget who we were, we are most prone to forget what God has done. It doesn't take much for me to remember how pathetic and a worm of a person that I was without Christ. You see, worshiping God 
is like none other. But friends, listen, you will always pursue that which you believe to be your greatest joy. You will always pursue whatever it is that you believe will bring you your greatest joy. And when you celebrate God's joy, it strengthens you not with diminishing returns, but with greater joy that does not end. And the greatest motivation for obedience in our life is celebration from God's joy within us. If you want God's power to permeate your whole life, you must look to him in your joys and your sorrows. You must look to him in your highs and your lows, as well as those moments of why and why God. Because if God is not worthy of your celebration in your lows, he will not be glorious enough to command your motivation in your highs. Just won't be worth it. If he's not your greatest gain for all of life, he'll never become your highest aim for for daily living. You see, we love to give God a nod when all is good. but we're quick to question him first when things don't go our way. And until God is as glorious and as hopeful to us in what appears as life's defeat and failure as in our success and victory, our worship is predicated not on God's will being done, but God doing our will instead of his will being revealed. You see, friends, God's power permeates all of life when the joy that he gives fuels our motivation for his glory and our celebration in that glory that reminds us he is worthy. He is worthy. And you know, for me, the greatest The seasons of greatest challenge and and difficulty in life have always proven to be times of greatest growth for me. I've shared this at different times and in different ways, but, but it seems like the times when I think most ground is being lost, God in some way later reveals to me how much ground he gained. Why? Because I usually come to him absolutely destitute the way I always ought to be in front of him. You know, that's true for our church as well. The greatest challenge to gospel ministry and the hardest problems we've encountered have historically been the season that produced the greatest fruit. Why? Because that's the way God worked. Now, listen, I'm not asking to return or repeat those times. Don't get me wrong about that. But I must honestly consider them and ask, was God faithful in the hard times? Was God faithful in the challenging times? Was God faithful in what appeared to me to be the dark times? What came out of those? You see, when you consume your life with God in worship and celebration and thanksgiving and in every other way, he fills your life with his presence, with his power, and with the eternal pleasures that only he can give to grow a hunger more. When God is your greatest joy, seeing his will in your life and serving his mission becomes your strongest motivation and your highest celebration. Why? Because you find he is worthy. The third distinct way that God's power permeates all of life is this, is when the gospel shapes the practice of your life. When the gospel shapes the practice of your life. Verses 19 through 22 
we see something very interesting. Look at verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. And then down in verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened breads. What are those? Well, we've talked about the feast of Passover representing God's provision to save the people from the angel of death and provide for them. The feast of unleavened bread is the one that follows this. It is the purifying. It is the righteous. It represents the righteousness of God permeating and being placed upon his people. And that's what we're told in the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Christ shed his blood on the cross for us, by faith we receive his blood shed for us. We are forgiven of our sin before God. We are cleansed of our sin and its stain and its eternal damnation. And we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is put upon us before God. And it says this, the returned exiles kept the Passover, and they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That little word kept is so important here. What does it mean? It means that they didn't allow competing priorities, they didn't allow pressing demands, and they didn't allow personal pleasures to take a higher precedence in life than the glory of God in their life. You see, worshiping the Lord faithfully remained their first priority from basically two practical reasons is what it says. First of all, there was an important recognition that they had to make. And that recognition in verse 20 tells us this, every one of them needed cleansing. You know, there wasn't a perfect person in the whole bunch. Not one. Not one. Every one of them, the priests and the Levites, the people who represented God to them, needed cleansing as well before they could go and do the work of representing cleansing to the people. And their cleansing only came by faith through the slaughtered Passover lamb. There was nothing of their own doing that they could do. This is an important recognition. It's what we call today confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. The second practical reason was what I would call an important reception. Verse 21 says, All who joined and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land worshiped the Lord. You see, all who believed received the cleansing for sin by faith. How? Through personal participation. Personal participation. This was not just religious ritual. This was not just being there because you were seen by others or because it would matter for the moment, but this was a faith-fueled practice for each one of them. And their faith was identified not by words spoken, get this, but by demonstrated action. You see, friends, Christians keep the gospel through which we are forgiven and cleansed and made righteous by Jesus' blood when we honor Jesus first in all of life. That's how we keep the gospel. This simple statement forms a critical principle for us. If you want God's power to permeate your whole life, you must keep by your life that which is given from God to you. That's why it said they separated themselves from the people of the land. There was a distinction here. And this separation is not foreign to us because of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. No, as a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? 
You say, what does it mean to be yoked with unbelievers? It means to have a partnership that you lose full control, full priority for your life to be impacted by or influenced from. You say, aren't we to love all people? Yes, but that's not a yoke together. You see, Christians hold distinct priorities that govern our lives because we live in a covenant relationship with God. And when we neglect the practices that demonstrate our faith, we forsake the testimony of the covenant that defines our faith. In other words, we say something to the world that's not true of God. We bear false testimony. Paul teaches how it is that the practice of our life flows out of our covenant with God by faith. And he's making this argument that how God's work for us should determine how we live for him. Maybe one of the most well-known is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? He's just spent 11 chapters in the first 11 chapters of Romans describing the mercies of God where God did not give us what we deserved but he gave us what we couldn't earn. That's what it means here. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Because of what we do? No, because of what he's done. And trusting in him. Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What calling is that? But from God himself through Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the walk that you walk demonstrate the way God has come to us in Jesus to save us. Colossians 2.6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's a personal participation for you, friends. By faith. Walking in the way of God. It can't be any more plain. It can't be any more practical. If you want God's power to permeate your whole life, you must allow the gospel to shape the practice of your life. You know, it's often argued, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Tony Evans, uh, which is a name many of you probably recognize, he's a pastor on the south side of Dallas, very well-known phenomenal uh, preacher, phenomenal uh, representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He responded on social media a couple of weeks ago with that quote, and he said, it is often said, and he gave the quote, and he said this, that's true. That's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And he said, it's also true you don't have to go home to be married, but try that for a time and see how well it works out for you. Friends, God does not call us to worship God does not call us to serve. God does not call us to obey by saying, you know what? You just give me whatever you feel like you can let go of today. And don't worry about the rest. Not at all. God calls us, come and die. That's what he calls us to. He says this. He says, says, come and give me your all. And see if I won't prove worthy of far more than what you thought you were giving up. There is no half-hearted 
partial surrender to Jesus. He is worthy of your all, or he's not worthy to be regarded at all. I wonder how many times and how many of us today have lost the sense of God's power at work in our lives because of how much gospel and faithful worship has not been kept, but forfeited and neglected for so many other things. God's power permeates all of life when the gospel centers everything for the display of his glory. Let's pray.